Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 32nd episode of The Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, this is the last episode we're recording before 2023. How many world championships and pro tours are you planning on winning in 2023 next year? All of them? <laughs> I, I would love to win all of them. That would be pretty cool. Uh, planning... I wouldn't say I'm planning to win any of them. I'm planning to try my best and put in a lot of work for them and see how it goes. But yeah. Okay. I just didn't know if you already had the money set aside for your prize winnings fully committed already or anything like that. I know the down payment on your Rari took up a lot of it, but I mean, maybe you'll get a second one next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I didn't get it. I did get a new car, but not a Ferrari. Yeah, Ferrari. It was a Ferrari. Yeah. I saw it. <laughs> no, it's uh It went vroom, vroom. It does, it does go vroom, vroom, kind of quietly. The same as a Ferrari. There you go. <laughs> okay. What about uh, how many how many tournaments are you planning to win next year? I don't know. Let's start with uh, one and we'll go from there, you know? Okay, okay. Well, that's one one next month. We got some pro quests coming up. Yeah, unfortunately, the world champions at all my pro quests, so they're pretty they're pretty difficult. <laughs> but uh, we'll see how they go. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, the world champions at all of your pro quests as well. But that's true. That is pretty unlucky. <laughs> so, I guess the topic for this week's episode, though, getting into it, is. Last week, Michael tried to give some amazing tips and tricks on how to get better at flesh and blood, and I just kind of let him talk and do his thing and let his amazing cat take in all of his pearls of wisdom. (laughs) And this week, I wanted to follow up and ask him some more detailed and intricate questions, kind of like a follow-up to that episode. So if you haven't seen the 31st episode of the Manor Podcast, go back and check that one out. And that should give you some good context for some of the stuff we're talking about. How does that sound, Michael? That sounds good. Look at that. You're answering questions like a pro already. Um, <laughs> one word. Good. Yeah, knocking it out of the park. Nice and simple. <laughs> Everybody can understand that one. So I guess we talked about card types a lot of, um, last week. And we kind of focused on like the value out of like attack and non-attack actions and we got a little bit into reactions but instants are just uniquely situated in flesh and blood obviously because they don't have an attack value and you can't block with them at all so you're only getting the value out of them as to what the actual text on their card is so i guess why do you think when instants are um, good. They're like far and above beyond the rate of other cards. Is is that kind of like the reason why? So instants kind of have to be built in a way to be pretty powerful. Like they, I don't think we have an instant that blocks yet. Every instant doesn't block. So that's a pretty big cost on your card. So it has to be pretty powerful to make up for the fact that it doesn't block. Right. So there's damage mitigation instance like, um, what's that? I keep blanking on. It's the one for four that gains you a life. Oasis respite. Oasis respite. Thank you. Uh, it's respite, Michael, not respite. Not respite. <laughs> we we went over this. Uh, <laughs> I've learned that several times. But yes, I that's, always forget. <laughs> uh, so that's the damage mitigation one, and. There were some claims that that card was going to be broken when it first came out, and it kind of hasn't done a whole lot just because even at its best, I guess, if you're pitching a card and you're getting the four damage mitigation and a life, that's two cards for five, plus whatever else you can do with those two floating resources if you pitched a blue, which is pretty tricky on your opponent's turn, actually, right? Yeah, it's definitely pretty tough. If you are a hero that can use your resources on your opponent's turn pretty well, it isn't the worst but again you're paying one resource for a five damage prevention at best if you're behind and then if you can use those other two two resources for two points value then you're getting a two card seven which is fine but you can already do that which is like a sync blow and a block three so like 
jumping through all these hoops and also having a card that only gets full value when you're behind them, it's it's not really worth it. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a good example of like an instant that's not, you know, pushed like we were talking about. But I think like the most infamous examples of like broken instants are Awakening and Art of War. Um, I think there are some that could potentially be broken down the line just by timing interactions, maybe with Blink, Blizzard, depending on the right metas and circumstances is really punishing for the aggressive decks. And especially in a deck like Icelander that gets even more value from playing it than a decks just other ice heroes i guess but is that just basically like how do you, do you think instants are always just going to be polarized like that potentially because there are some very bad instances as well like the the wizard one that counters uh non non-attack action i think there's two different wizard ones that counter non-attack actions there's a negate one and rewind and i remember rewind had the alternate art where it's all backwards because i have like i think i have more of those and i have regular rewind somehow yeah and both of those are like pretty bad and then we have brainstorm which is like unplayable unless you like super build around it and then like it's broken if you do when you're doing the thing where it can be responsible for like broken strong broken it, yeah it can be <laughs> but like clickbait titles yeah yeah i mean the card itself can do 20 damage for three resources and a card that doesn't even cost your action point. Like it is very powerful if you're, if you are doing all the things to make it work, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it's a build around. Sure. Yeah, the card yeah, by yeah. itself does nothing, but when you build around it, yes, it does enable you to deal 20 damage. Yeah. So it's, it's very, I guess it's either like, you're either building your whole deck around it or it's like a completely unplayable card, right? Yeah, it's just a blue that does that's just a blue bobble that, that you can't block with or do anything with and has no text. Yeah. So I I think I guess what was your original question again? I'm sorry. It's just like and why are instants so polarized? Is just because of the nature of how they're designed. I or like so. how do you effectively calculate like the value of an instant then like a card like brainstorm then or something like that well brainstorm you just count how much damage it dealt after you cast it and then like you're like this is what the value is worth that's not always the case playing. though oh no not really i mean like when you're casting it i guess maybe but it's more nebulous than that right because there are times when you're just going to use it to pitch or it could just be a complete dead card in your hand or like there's just going to be circumstances where it's not just directly dealing damage i guess or you hit it off of kano and it's a card you can't cast like there's all kinds of situations where its value is not directly tied to the damage it's dealing right Yeah, I guess if you pitch it for resources and you use the resources efficiently, it's just like the same as any other blue. And then sure. when you play it, like when you play it, the damage it deals is kind of just the the amount of value you got from it. And then like kind of the question you look at when you're building and playing with Brainstorm Kano is like how much how often is Brainstorm getting enough value and is it worth like how much you have to skew your deck and build around it to get that much value from it? And that's kind of hmm. how you like decide if it's worth playing the whole deck, I guess, because like you can't really you can't really just figure out the value of brainstorm, I guess, because sure, kind of. So <laughs> the supercomputer stuff, last episode, all that mm-hmm. stuff. But that's what you're encouraging people to do is figure out like the value of these cards. And this is you know kind of the pushback I wanted to give last week, but I'm giving you now. It's just that. The more complicated a card is, and the, I guess, in this even specific card type of instance, deriving its specific value is incredibly complicated. Yeah, and I guess it's like complicated, similar to like how Channel Mount Heroic is complicated in a deck building, like when you're deck building, but like when you're actually in the game, you can definitely just assign the value that it gives you to it when you're trying to figure out like what it like post playing the card post resolving the card at the end of the turn you can Mm -hmm. be like yeah brainstorm was responsible for 18 damage or something 
jumping away from brainstorm into some of the other instances you talked about, like awakening and ardor. Um, yeah, also very complicated cards. I was gonna even go even softer on you into a card like rain razors or lightning press, because those are probably the most straightforward in terms of what their value is. It's just they obviously have a higher cost for being put in your deck since they don't block and they only do the one very specific thing. So it's just weird in the sense of like, I guess, deck building considerations, including them in your deck. Yeah, so Lightning Press is worth three most of the time, and it can also be the difference between on hits getting through and not getting through, whereas like... If you play a snatch and I guess if you play a snatch with go again somehow and they block it. We're going back to razor reflex at this point. That's fair. Okay, if you just play a snatch and you have one card in hand, then you can use a snatch plus the lightning press to be seven damage and then you replace or you draw a new card to basically arsenal if you don't Mm -hmm. have go again. And that's a pretty powerful interaction, but if you're just playing like wounding blow and lightning pressing it, then it's just a card for three damage. That's not very flexible. So, and I guess it's almost always worth three, but then sometimes like pushing through on hits can increase the value of it. Yeah. By whatever the value of the on hit is. Okay. But, and then there's a card like rain razors where you need to play two arrows in order for you to be at rate on the card, right? Because on the second arrow, you're at four damage from the one card. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fair way to look at it. I think it's often above rate once you get two arrows, because again, zero for three is kind of what you're looking for, for something that doesn't use your action point basically. So zero for four is, is quite good when you can get two arrows off. And then like, its ceiling is being like a pump spell that like surprises them to get your first on hit through and then also being worth two or even four more damage throughout the rest of the turn if you follow that up with two if you follow the first arrow up with two more arrows okay i guess you saying zero for four not using an action point leads me to my next question though which is we both, uh, just a few months ago, put, or at the start of the podcast, Sink Below is the best card in the game because it's a zero for four that loots and draw you a card. Do you think that that's changed in your opinion? Do you think maybe we were too high on Sink Below or that it's not necessarily as insane as we thought it was? Or do you still just think it's the best card in the game? Yeah, it's... I don't know if it's the best card in the game, but if I had to point to like one card that is the best card in the game. I still don't know if anything comes to mind above Sync Below. I think the fact that Sync Below can go in almost any deck and basically should be in almost every deck makes it kind of unquestionable. Like, it's it's unquestionably one of the best cards in the game. And I think, like, to say it's not the best card in the game, you'd have to show me some some decks doing well with zero copies of Sync Below. That's fair, I guess. But... It being in so nebulous is one way to think about it as being the best card, but just because it's in a deck doesn't mean that it's always being played. I think um, the example I'm thinking of right now is the most recent iterations of Phi have, I think, two to three copies of Sync Below, but they're only playing them in two matchups and maybe Dorinthia as the extra one. So they're not really played a lot, even though they're in the deck. And it's really not where a super aggressive deck like Fire ever really wants to be. Because if you're using card, even if you're using a card efficiently like that, just a zero for four, it's still not advancing your primary game plan, which is just get your opponent dead, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess I think... I think there are probably other cards that are more powerful in like specific decks. Like Channel Mount Heroic in Briar is probably more powerful than Sink Below is in most decks. Or Art of War in Fi, probably more powerful than Sink Below is in most decks. And I guess also like Channel Like Frigid and Icelander is probably better than Sink Below is in most decks. And like a lot of cards are very powerful in specific decks that are built around them. But I think like 
a big part of Sync Below's power is that almost almost every deck just wants Sync Below in at least some of its matchups because of how powerful it is when you're just looking for a card that blocks for a lot. And then the utility of filtering a card is so is really high on top of a card that's just already at rate zero for four doesn't cost an action point. Right. I guess so the rate is always considered then based on how much life it either gains blocks for or damages for regardless of the other restrictions attached to it for the most part yes if you are having trouble getting that value out of your card then i think it's reasonable to reevaluate it i guess a good example of this is red staunch response is worth seven and if you're it's a two card seven most of the time. And if you're combining it with Crown of Seeds or Rampart of the Ram's Head, it's pretty easy to make it a two card eight. And it can be very difficult to get that value out of it because most opponents in the game aren't going to attack you for seven. <laughs> they're going to attack you for four with go again, or they're going to do. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that decks attack you, and most of them do not involve a single One attack that has seven value. So in a world where everyone's attacking with multiple threes and less, then then sync below looks a lot worse. For example, sometimes against Phi, it can even be awkward because they go uh, red head jab zero for three into the sword, into a phoenix flame. And if they don't have a four power finisher, then your sync below might not get four points about you. So... Well, isn't that when you like cut up the sink below and you put just like a fourth of the sink below in front of the Phoenix Flame and the three fourths of it in front of the sword? You can't. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be perfect. You can't do that. No. Not like, and, oh, I've yes. been cutting up a lot of sink below for no reason then. <laughs> and that's honestly why a card like Sigil of Solace sees play. It's a red. It's always gets exactly three points of value. Has no other utility. Doesn't do anything else. But you can always get that three points of life no matter what your opponent's doing, no matter what you're doing. It always trades for three points of value. So, Okay. There is definitely space for cards to not get their full value when you have them. Alrighty. And why do you think we haven't seen I guess really good just generic or attack reactions in general? I think the vast majority of attack reactions in this game have pretty hefty like restrictions on them, like Razor Reflex can only target cards that are one or less. Pummel, two or higher. Warrior cards, you have to be playing a warrior. That's a pretty big restriction. Um, or something like the Assassin cards can only target Assassin attacks. So for how restricted it is to get like the damage or the actual value off of these cards, do you think attack reactions should maybe be beefed up a little bit? Or do you think their design is just always going to be intrinsically awkward? That's a tough one because if you make powerful attack reactions that can go in any deck, then... Like imagine there was... Uh, rise above it's just a zero for four attack reaction (laughs) well so zero for four without costing an action point is already really really like that's that's really strong and then an attack reaction kind of has that extra utility of forcing through on hits and ways that your opponent can't really interact with because well i shouldn't say can't interact with but they're harder to interact with because you need defense reactions to increase your block value in that stage of the the combat or instance that mitigate damage sure sure <laughs> you can always just respite after your respite. opponent plays there dang it <laughs> you can always just respite after your opponent plays the zero for four attack reaction but in general attack reactions well first zero for four without using an action point is above rate sure but because, that's what sink below is yeah sink below but I guess there is a condition on attack reaction that you have to play an attack to be able to attack react. But if attack reactions have no conditions and 
can just be in any deck and be used at any time, then it kind of becomes like unblockable damage almost, where if your Fi opponent has this card in their deck and they go zero for three with go again into sword into Phoenix Flame, there's not really a point that makes sense to overblock to try to play around the zero for four, even if you just want to block out all their damage. And then I guess so there's not really an interesting counterplay to it on top of it just being really pushed, I guess, on rate. Well, wouldn't the counterplay to it being sink below? It, I mean, it completely breaks even, like rise above this hypothetical card where it doesn't even loot. It's just zero for four attack reaction. The counterplay to it is exactly trading for one sink below. There's no above or below anything on it. They just, they're both zero for fours, just that they have specific windows in which that they can be played yeah i guess i think sync below is a little bit more restricted than that because again you can't just block or you can't just gain four life with sync below all the time whereas this just just is always going to represent four damage as long as you have an attack which well, again not if they might. block what do you mean it's not representing four damage right if you attack for four and your opponent blocks for eight, then this card represented four damage. It just got blocked. Sure, but if not. you attack with a... I guess we'll go to your a Phoenix Flame attack. You're attacking for one, and they block with a three block. You're not getting four damage out of this card. You're getting two. Because it's the difference between their block value. Because you weren't going to get that two damage through regardless. You just traded this card for two damage at that point. And it would have yeah. the exact same problem as Sink Below at that point. Yeah, that's fair. I guess if they overblock all of your attacks, then this card is bad. <laughs> even bad, bad might be strong. If they overblock by two on all of your attacks for your entire turn, then this card is not great. Yeah, so it's bad in Bolton. I'm glad we figured that out. Because all those attacks are always overblocked. <laughs> it would be great. Would it? Are there any great cards? Bolt Index already playing the. You can only play this if you've charged plus three power on an attack. Yeah, but that one blocks for two. That's an attack reaction. How how often do you block with two? A lot. You're playing Bolton. You you don't want to block with two blocks. (laughs) Blocking with two blocks is bad. You got to do what you got to do, man. That's below rates. (laughs) Welcome to playing Bolton. (laughs) I love Bolton. I'm just kidding. So one other issue with this card existing is I guess like even weaker weaker attack reactions that are like generic and like would work in everything is if they are at a constructed power level, if there's a lot of different or if there are multiple different attack reactions that don't have restrictions, it's really hard to know which ones your opponent could have. Right now, while the attack reaction pool is smaller, you can kind of like narrow it down to what attack reactions they're representing but in a world where maybe maybe there's just like a three cost that gives plus seven attack reaction and there would be no real way to differentiate between pummel and this new attack reaction which one they're representing so like you can overblock to try to beat the pummel and still just like take damage to this thing or who rise above combined with pummel would be gross that would be pretty (laughs) sweet Yeah. So basically like powerful generic attack reactions are a really scary space, I think. Okay. Well, I doubt they're printing rise above at any point in time and I'm not in charge of uh card design at LSS surprise. So I, I don't think you have to worry about this anytime soon. Is it rise above the name of the defense reaction from Monarch? I'd hope not. Because that card is that the one that puts a card on top of your your deck? I think I read it blocks for four for two cost defense reaction, but instead of paying its cost, you can put a card from your hand on top of your deck. Yeah, I've looked at that card. I'm like, oh, I could put my Bolton combo piece on top of my deck instead of having to pitch it or block with it, or they're about to pummel me, and then I don't have to. I could just save my extra card, and then I always think about it. and I'm like, this seems atrocious, and then I move on. But that's the only use case I've hypothetically even thought about that for that card so far. You can set up your chain shackles or your Levia ravenous meat axe. 
Though I guess those are things. Or your Azalea arrow. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just have We're to give up a whole it. card to do it. Look at that. Rise above was broken all along. <laughs> Either way. I mean, you can get past the two card four. <laughs> broken. It's zero card four. Or two. Yeah. Two, two card cards. four. Two cards yeah. four. So I guess let's move on to the next question, though, which is how would you value setting up an arsenal for a rise above or any card? For a rise above. So, <laughs> so if your rise above's in your arsenal, it's not a two card four anymore. It's a what card four? Because it's not you're not using the card out of your hand. So it's just a free card, right? That's how you evaluate it. So so I think it's kind of tricky to evaluate arsenals. They're kind of like not exactly on, like there is a value component to them, but there's other things you need to look at when you're thinking about whether you should arsenal, such as like how soon you're going to use it and get out of your arsenal. How likely are you to have another card that you'd like to arsenal before you use this card? And a lot of other factors that go into whether you should arsenal a card or not. But in general, the value of a card that you arsenal, I think, you look at the value you could get out of playing it this turn, and then... If you're even able to do it. Yeah, if you're able to play it or block with it or something. And then, like, you just look at the value you get when you use it from your arsenal for playing it, I guess. So, like, if you arsenal a red lightning surge, and then next turn you play your red lightning surge, it was worth four that you arsenaled it. So you got more points out of it than you would have by blocking for two with it or pitching it for one, for example. Sure, but when you play for, from your arsenal, is it zero for four? Is it a zero card for damage or is it still a one card for damage? Does it still count as a card from your arsenal? Yeah, yeah, it still counts as a card because you drew, you had to spend a draw to draw that card. Right, just not that turn. Okay. So it's Sometimes, just... unless you're playing Heatseeker. <laughs> or you have other ways to put cards in your arsenal, right? Yeah, like if you hit a snatch at the end of your turn, it's. I guess at that point, it doesn't really matter what the value of it is because you're drawing and arsenaling it. So. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like. Whatever value you get from that card. Yes, yeah, so it's value a free snatch card. But it doesn't. Yeah. So you can't evaluate as as the part of the card, then just the part of the previous card. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. If you hit with Snatch and you arsenal the card, then whatever value you end up getting out of that card is kind of like, that's kind of what the value of the Snatch on hit was, right? Yeah, because it's not its own card. It's part of the Snatch card. Wait, what do you mean it's not its own card? It's not its own card because it's you're saying it's part of the Snatch card draw, so it's not its own card draw. It's part of the Snatch card draw, so you can't rate it as its own card. It's part of the Snatch. <laughs> Right, I think you're. I th- I think there might be some things that don't really matter in terms of what you're what you're saying right here. Like, yes, I I don't I don't think it. Like sorry. yes, go on. So, if you have a card saying in your just, arsenal, you're saying trying I don't to matter on this podcast no, now. That's now not, that's just, not just tanking. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't think it matters. Where the card came from that you arsenal is what I'm trying to say. You once it's in your arsenal, you're just trying to get the most value out of it possible, right? Yeah, and it's broken if you filter it with a crown of seeds. That card needs to be banned, right? Because it's just free damage mitigation, you know, free. Because no, a card, a card in your arsenal, when you give up a card, you're, in you're your turning arsenal, a card into it, it's a one damage. That's broken, right? How, how, how can decks compete with amazing value like a card and a resource for one point, Michael? Well, the card replaces itself. It's just one resource. It's net one resource for one point of life, which is at rate for limited, not great for constructed. It's fine, but not amazing. Mm-hmm. And So it's broken, and you said think it deserves to be banned. I, I do not think Crown of Seeds should be banned. I think if, if Crown of Seeds ever is in a spot where it needs to be banned it's because it's doing fatigue things similar to the issue that they had with Jorna Brutality which was before my time so a whole other thing but being able to convert resources into damage prevention 
without spending cards is kind of like the drone of brutality thing where you could block for two with it infinitely basically sure but i guess how much damage on average do you think crown of seeds mitigates per game like how much like actual value is this piece of equipment generating i would say like at best like six six or seven and on average maybe like two or three yeah i think there are matchups where it does get activated more than six or seven times like old time mirrors or old timers icelander are situations where sometimes you activate crown of seeds quite a lot I guess maybe Oldheim v. Icelanders, that's not actually accurate. It's Oldheim versus the old Icelanders that were doing arcane every turn is when you activate the crowd more. Right, yeah, I was skeptical on your second claim. I was thinking Oldheim mirror maybe, but I mean, that who, who's who's losing at that point? Everybody's equal. Everybody's got crown of seeds. So. Sure. And then I've had okay. games against uh rune blades where it's activated more than six or seven times where the games go really long and you can use resources on their turn really effectively because you have no rune boots to prevent damage so like if you pitch a blue and do crown no rune then you're able to use all three resources effectively to prevent damage okay checks out to me i guess though go ahead i guess that said if you're preventing eight damage with Crown of Seeds, you're spending eight resources to prevent damage with Crown of Seeds, which again makes it not doing anything above. Like it's not, it's never going above rate. You're cycling a card, and it's still not mask damage. the pouncing links because it, that's zero resources for like six to eight damage or whatever. So yeah, I mean, yeah. one of those is, is better than the others. So I guess I was going to get into that though. From you're talking about like damage mitigation and uh value and fatigue and stuff so also previously we had a very long-winded riveting pivoting conversation about tempo have your thoughts on tempo changed at all since we last discussed it so i've kind of come around to the definition that was brought up at one point and tempo just means you're winning the game i think i think i'm a believer and tempo just means you're currently winning the game okay and you don't think so like and a card that's threatening to make you be the one winning the game is a card that's stealing tempo. Yes. Okay. So if this Commander and Conquer hits and there's a card in your arsenal that says you win the game and it hits and then you lose the game, the card the if you you being forced to block that card is preventing a tempo loss. So You being forced to block that card generally means, like, if you have a bunch of two blocks that are zero for fours with go again, for example, and you have to use three of them to block this command and conquer, then you're losing tempo there because you're becoming less likely to win the game when you have these cards that could be worth 12 points of value. Well, it doesn't really matter what their potential value would be. You, you had to spend three cards to get six points of value by blocking the command and conquer. Which means you're much less likely to win the game now. So you lost tempo there. Awesome. We did it. We got him on tempo. It was a good year, everybody. (laughs) Happy 2022. Hopefully next year we can convince Michael on other amazing concepts like um, spicy food is great and coffee is the nectar of life but Definitely we'll see not coming around on coffee spice is nice in low amount light amounts light light spice yeah it's okay if i just tempo you enough eventually we'll convince you right why am i losing oh no <laughs> <laughs> i'm just playing very threatening life facts that alter your way of viewing life Anyways, moving on. The last heated thing we've been talking about recently was today we had a good discussion about Talishar data, and they released this huge cross sheet of like win percentage matchups of 166,000 games, I think they said, since October. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, you're learning so much information about hero matchups, and it's confirmed that Arachne sucks right now, and unfortunately Azalea still also sucks, and also Bolton sucks according to all these loss pers- like or win loss ratios. But Bravo seemed awesome; like he was like one of the most winning heroes on the whole sheet. 
And then Michael comes in, Mr. Grumpapus, and he says, none of this data matters. Brah, 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 brah. And I just want to know why it doesn't matter. Is it just about the quality of games or, or what, what is the, what, what, why don't you like the, the data? I guess I shouldn't say the data doesn't matter at all. There is, you can draw a lot of conclusions from the data and it's not completely, it's not useless, but it also isn't telling you what the best deck is or what the best decks are. And a hero having a high win rate or a low win rate doesn't really mean that hero is broken or awful or something. For example, Icelander had, I don't remember what the win rate was, but it was very low, like sub 40% for a while. And I think Icelander is very well established a tier one deck now. She got no new cards from when she had a very low yeah. win. No, you don't think Icelander's tier one? We'll see. Not according to Talishar. I'll, 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 so. I'll take the compliments. You know, I won with not a, not a tier one deck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you winning with Azalean and winning with Icelander basically would have been the same accomplishment. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I think another thing is that this, this win rate data, it just being sorted by hero, there's a lot of different ways to build heroes. And a hero having a low win rate means that people are probably not playing. Like there might, there might be other builds out there that are better than what is being played or. Yeah. But you don't think 166,000 games is representative of all the different ways to build a hero. No. Okay. Because. Well, I guess. How many games would it take then? I don't million? think it's about quantity of games because like. I mean, but at a certain point, the quantity of games would matter, right? You would see specific like if heroes were fundamentally, you know, skewed, which we know they are on a large enough sample size, it would become meaningful data for seeing high level patterns on how their hero performs on an aggregate level. And your argument is that, well, just because on an aggregate level they perform this way doesn't mean that there's not some other way to build them that might be unique, like Bolander, I guess, would be what you were go-to for here. But for gleaming, I guess, like the specific capabilities of what heroes are capable of, I guess, like even like just a macro level you don't think it's useful for? Um, I don't think so because I guess another hero I like pointing out as a hero that I think is not very good but people love him is Bravo Bravo had a 56% win rate in that data and what's wrong with Bravo <laughs> two resources dominate easy not a very powerful hero power yeah, it but is, you get Spinal Crush. Everyone gets, or all Guardians get Spinal Crush. Or what's the one that you would use? Crippling. Yeah, the one, the other Crush, the Crush yeah, Crush. Yeah, Crippling Crush is a very powerful card. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't like Bra Bravo has not been doing well at tournaments yet. Period. <laughs> Oh, yeah. What tournaments have there been since October? Since there was when this data started being recorded. I don't know. I guess we'll maybe we'll see Bravo all over ProQuest. The, the Michael Hamilton Invitational of the Icelander V5 at the coffee shop we went to that one time was that the high level tournament that Bravo didn't win? <laughs> the coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, was, when we that was the uh, donut the donut place. There was coffee there too. It was coffee wow. donut general goods i think i got tea there though tea shop now okay <laughs> so i guess i think that if the data was sorted by builds of the decks then the sample sizes probably wouldn't be big enough to get meaningful data from but if it was and if but i don't think it is that useful when it's not sorted by different builds? Because what if there was like a ladder system on Talishar and like the highest ranked game, like the highest ranked players win rates, would those matter more so than builds or would that still not 
matter to you just because yeah. the builds are more important than player skill level. I guess that's another point is that Talishar collects data from every game, whether you're half asleep, drunk, playing, you're playing and watching something on your other screen. Michael Hamilton classic. Half distracted. Watching something on my other screen. <laughs> or being <laughs> half asleep, drunk. <laughs> that one. Um, and then it also, a lot of new players turn to Talishar as a way to get games in. It's a great resource for that. And I think it's great that that tool is available. But if it did have a ranking system and it was just taking results, like if, and you could see like a breakdown of what the top ranked players' win rates were on different heroes or top rank, maybe top ranked players versus other top ranked players, I think that would be a lot more helpful than just overall win rates because maybe once like i think once you start looking into matchups you can see like some matchups have pretty lopsided results in the data and maybe there are ways you could approach fixing that matchup or doing things to improve that matchup from that hero and that's kind of like i guess something that is not that this data is it's it kind of gives you a point of where you should start working or looking at matchups you might need to improve. If your hero has a twenty five percent win rate and another hero, then you should probably, according to Talishar data, then that's a good thing to play test and see if you can improve. Especially if it's against a hero that you expect a reasonable amount of at whatever tournament you're going to be going to. The next then, Michael Hamilton Invitational. <laughs> yeah, then. That's something that you should probably test and that the data is useful for seeing those kind of things, but it doesn't tell like a full story. It's not like the metagame solved because we have this data or something like that. Let's push back on this a little bit now. I got, I got, I got a little pushback. So let's say you see on this Talishar data, this Talishar data even, uh, that a specific hero matchup is really bad and you play five games and you win all five games of the supposed bad matchup, does that mean your build of the deck fixes this matchup? No, because once again, we're getting into sample size. And that's why I'm saying the amount of games does matter on some fundamental level. Yeah, but I, I don't... I would say you can get more from those five games than you can from that data point. I don't think wow. that winning those five games. That's a games, bold claim. Really? You think that's a bold claim? I do. You get to see so many different ways that cards interact in a five game match. You like learn a lot of interactions and like what things matter and like why matchups are potentially good or bad. You can figure that out pretty quickly, I feel like, when you're actually playing games. And five games of a matchup. I wouldn't say that it, you you should say you solved the matchup or why the match was bad, and maybe you should look for another opponent playing the same hero to try to figure out like if it's something that your opponent was missing or if it was against five different players. And like, yeah, that's it, what I'm saying. I, there's all kinds of things about that. Those five games could be flawed. Because if you played five games into me and I'm playing Brainstorm Kano, and the, we saw that the Bolton v Kano is like. Kano can never lose the matchup and then all of a sudden me coming in fumbling around with brainstorm and I'm like oh well I guess I can't ever beat Bolton actually and this Talishar data doesn't matter like what did you learn yeah again I, I think it depends on a lot on the I guess the quality of the games you're getting if you're getting like testing where both players are very proficient with their decks and are very prepared for the matchup then it's going to be a lot more valuable than if you're playing five game, your first five games of Brainstorm Kano. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I won my first game of Brainstorm Kano back on the day, though, but nice. I lost my next five and put the deck down. <laughs> I think I lost my first game of Brainstorm Kano and put the deck down. <laughs> yeah, that was a good game. Was that on our stream? It yeah, was. That was fun. <laughs> Maybe we'll bring it back sometime. <laughs> Yeah, next stream, next stream. I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, anything else you want to talk about then before we start wrapping things up then? I think this was a good supplement uh, to follow-up questions. I guess are there any questions that you thought 
I could have asked better or anything you want to clarify overall from last episode? So it's not about last episode. I kind of want to talk about the Talisho data a little bit more. I know you have posted some opinions that the data could be really harmful and it's potentially pretty dangerous that we have that. I kind of wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah. So this was a discussion in our discord and somebody asked like, how would you use this data when incorporating like your next ProQuest season matchups and stuff like that. And I am just of the opinion that publishing data like that is just not good for the game as a whole. I think if they want to like submit that data to like uh, LSS on like the back end, I think that would be like a really cool service that they could provide and kind of like a help justify them like existing. I don't know if they're allowed to communicate with LSS or something like that, but that would be something I would be okay with. But as far as public having access to that data is not something that I think leads to very healthy outcomes in, I guess, card games, just because when data like that becomes publicly available, it kind of, even if it's not 100% accurate, it helps people start streamlining and understand the game at a faster and faster rate. And that just leads to things becoming solved and more stagnant more easily so i guess like let's say like we were so excited uh or i guess we was the strongest we's doing a lot of heavy lifting i was so excited when dynasty came out because i was like maybe azalea and reinar and all the stuff is broken and i was still kind of of that or not broken but like playable uh and i was still kind of excited about reinar all the way up until i looked at the talishar data and i saw reinar was still not good like he still had really bad win rate percentages across the board and I was like, oh, I guess I just shouldn't invest my time even a little bit in Reinar because it just doesn't seem like a winning hero. And sure, maybe I can find if I focus wholeheartedly on Reinar and learn him and perfect this really unique build. But as a busy guy like me might not have the time to do that, where my time could be better spent just focusing on Mobile, Oldheim, and Icelander. So... I guess that's just kind of, it's just, it's the same deck. You just said it like five minutes ago. I got no cards from Dynasty. It's like, we're just, we're talking about the last three flex slots versus our pro quest meta. Hmm, where do we, what do we want to do? The, obviously it's like, oh, we got the, the third hypothermia spoilers. <laughs> oh man. That's, that's the one thing. What? Big innovations over here. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's just kind of my soapbox on the data. And I guess if anybody from February is listening, uh, that's why I would prefer them to take it down. But it's their website, their call. And I know even um, Talishar used to have a section of their website very similar to that, and they took it down. And I was a big fan of when that section of the website went down and I will be a big fan of this section of the website goes down just because even if there's a chance that the data is very representative and accurate and leads to, I guess, a worse meta and people figuring things out faster, why even play with that fire? Just it's, it's not doing any good in my opinion. So I would prefer it to not be there. And I guess to throw some additional context in uh magic online was kind of the this is the only like real data point i have for this where they had they have leagues that you could enter with some currency and if you went five and oh in a league you would win more prize currency and then they would post all the deck lists that went five and oh in every league and as they did that the decks became more and more like what's the word yeah homogenized where they were just like the flex the the decks were like being off by like one or two sideboard cards and basically where people were playing the exact same list and it led to formats getting solved very quickly like weeks after solved might be strong but like finding like those tier one decks very quickly after the set came out and finding like pretty close to optimal versions of those deck lists very quickly in formats and I think that was like really not good for the game. It kind of like you were talking about kind of killed the chance where the time where people were excited to explore things. It was very quickly like, no, just play this deck here that 
has gone 5-0 a million times the last two weeks. And yeah, absolutely. And that's why uh, Wizards, for as much as they make bad decisions, made an actual good decision and stopped publishing all the deck lists and started doing just curated ones, uh, certain lists. And let's say there were a million blue-white decks that went 5-0. and oh. Instead, they would just post one blue-white list along with like a handful of other spattering of lists in order so people couldn't see like the exact ratios of win rates of decks. And it led to things slowing down and being healthier for a while while they were actually making good sets. So, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, I guess data can be potentially dangerous. I think what we have currently where it's just listing what heroes are winning and losing, I, I think that's like, not nearly as Ideal. dangerous as entire deck lists and seeing the every deck list that's going five and oh and being like, okay, 18 people went five and oh with this list plus or minus like three cards difference. Whereas this is just mm. like, yeah, people are winning a lot with Bravo. I I guess if everyone's using the same Bravo deck, then it could be figured out pretty quickly i guess that it's this deck and then people are like working on small tweaks from there but like whenever someone finds something that like might make the deck a little bit better it's not that technology is not going to be posted immediately so i think it's yes it kind of helps determine which heroes are good and bad but it's not eh, it's it's pretty bad if that's if that's how it's being used that everyone's just or that it Sorry, I, I don't know exactly how. Yeah, I, I would agree. Still. It's fine, Michael. It's been a long episode. You're a tired, sleepy boy. You don't have your cat behind you anymore. It's time to start wrapping things up. So, any any final final thoughts on flesh and blood? All right, I'm. Uh, I think I'm good. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you to all of our patrons and everybody on our Discord. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. I know Michael didn't give you a shout out, but you know, oh I really appreciate it. And I also we're just blown away. I, I'm just blown away okay. by all the support. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, and always remember, whether it be in 2022 or next year in 2023, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for listening. See you next year.